Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Hoodoo Justice Magic, binaural production engineer Damien Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. And if you are interested in contributing to this show, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com. You'll find everything you need there. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Mark Ireland. And he has been on before, and he has written some books, Soul Shift and Messages from the Afterlife. And also his father's book, Richard Ireland, Your Psychic Potential. Thanks for coming on today. Hey, it's great to be back. Thanks for inviting me. Awesome. So, um, I guess for the for the people who did not listen to the first interview, um, would you like to give a brief, uh, you know, like a, an overview of, um, you know, who your father was, what happened to you, and how you got into this subject? Sure. Unlike uh, most people out there, I grew up with a father who was very psychic. Was pretty prominent in his day, mainly the 60s, 70s, and 80s, counseled people like Mae West, who I got to meet when I was 19, which was pretty cool. Um, but he was also uh, like a, um, a spiritualist minister. Eventually, he went and created his own church with, with uh, without the dogma attached to spiritualism, but that's really where he got his start. So he was both a psychic and a medium as well. But in you know, back in the 60s, the only way you could really present this stuff outside of his church was in in a like as an entertainment kind of thing. So he would do psychic demonstrations on TV shows and nightclubs and things like that. Um, so I grew up with that. That was normal to me. Dad kind of knew everything that was going on in the house. So you couldn't get away with a lot of stuff. Um, as an example, you know, my mom, when they were first married, uh, she had gone a couple months trying to be a vegetarian and was succeeding. And then one day she just broke down and had to get a burger. So she ran out, got this burger, came home. And when dad had returned home that evening, the first thing he said to her was, um, so Shirley, did you enjoy your hamburger today? Uh, that was kind of <laughs> typical. And my brother, when he, he was, he's 10 years older than I am. So when he was a teenager and I was a little kid, he would, my dad would uh, short circuit his hot rodding and street racing plans and also his getting beer from somebody when he was underage. So <laughs> that was kind of the standard thing in our house. But um, I also saw the evidence of the continuity of consciousness after physical death from the messages he gave people, uh, primarily in his church, sometimes in nightclubs, it would spontaneously happen, but more often in his church, uh, highly detailed information, names, and um, I could see how it really touched the people. And, uh, and gave them hope. So that was uh, valuable to me later on because as an adult, you know, I, I got married uh, young, got my degree, went into the business world, and uh, we had two sons. And I didn't really follow my dad's footsteps. I always appreciated what he did, his abilities, but I didn't try to be like him. I just took my own path. Uh, but in January 2004, my youngest son, Brandon, unexpectedly passed uh, from while climbing uh, mountains near our home in Scottsdale, Arizona. And we, uh, we didn't know the cause of death for about a week, but it was then that I reflected back on my father and growing up with him that really gave me comfort, you know, more than anything, not just relying on blind faith, but actually having seen something that, where you knew there was something real going on and that there's more to our existence than just the physical part of it. Um, and then that led me into all the stuff that's in the book, Soul Shift, that you read. Uh, basically, going back into the field, meeting some researchers uh, that research mediumship, and then also meeting some top mediums and having my own uh, readings with them, as blinded as they could be to who I was and my background, and um, had a lot of remarkable information come through that really gave me a lot of hope. And then that culminated, I'd say, with a, a reading that 
took place in the lab at the University of Arizona uh, that was taped for uh, Discovery Channel. And that, if somebody wants to see that clip, it's available on my website, which is markirelandauthor.com. But uh, yeah, that, you know, this whole thing of having my son pass unexpectedly drew me back into my dad's field, if you will. Um, and then putting out two books of my own and one of his, I'm working on a third one now too. And then um, also co-founded an organization for bereaved parents called Helping Parents Heal, and it's exploded. Uh, we've got 21,000 members worldwide. We have 100 affiliate locations. Uh, we do a monthly newsletter. We have Zoom meetings with a lot of top people like Evan Alexander, who's uh, written a book on his near-death experience. He's a neurosurgeon, for those of you who haven't heard of him. Uh, Raymond Moody, um, some top mediums. So um, it's really interesting. And then I've also uh, put together a mediumship certification program because people, after reading my books, come to me and they want to know who they should go see. So um, oftentimes the people I know who are top-notch folks and big names have long wait lists or they might be a little too expensive for people. So I started back in 2014 doing testing of people who claim to have mediumship skills and then based on statistical uh, results, determine if they pass or not. And if they pass and I put them on a website, I put together and that way I can steer people to resources that have been vetted. It still doesn't guarantee you a great reading, but it can enhance uh, the chances quite a bit. Right. So one of the things that your father was famous for, didn't he used to like tape his eyes closed, then wear a blindfold and something over the blindfold. And he was able to read the serial numbers off of dollar bills. Yeah, today we actually call that remote viewing. I mean, uh, in the U.S. military has used remote viewers to basically spy on uh, other countries, more so back, you know, a couple decades ago. But um, yes, and I think my father developed this early on, really, when he was uh, he was born cross-eyed. And at the age of five, he went into the Columbus Children's, Columbus, Ohio Children's Hospital for sur corrective surgery. And after that surgery took place, he was... Uh, his eyes were cupped and bandaged and they tied him down to a bed because they didn't want him touching it. And a nurse felt sorry for him. And she said she'd let him up, but if he only if he promised not to mess with the bandages. And so he agreed and she went on about her rounds, came back and found him kept bouncing a ball against the wall and catching it and thought, Oh my gosh, he's taken the, the uh, bandages off, but he hadn't. So that was pretty startling to her. And then she brought in some other, doctors to witness this and then they did a bunch of tests on him like they would put him in his bed and one would stand in front of him and one would be at the doorway and uh and uh say okay who's in front of you now but the other one would be talking and he would get it right every time so that was kind of the first realization um, from my grandmother that my father had a pretty unusual kind of clairvoyance and then so as an adult his normal demonstration was using 10 strips of Johnson Johnson medical tape, which is very sticky and thick and opaque. If you've ever seen it or used it, then he cover his eyes with that. Yeah. Cover his eyes with the tape and then three opaque black blindfolds and then more tape over and then more tape down below the blindfold, over the blindfold, down up under the cheek. So even if people would accuse him of being able to peek somehow, you, you could see that it was sealed down here and, Really, it was for effect as much as anything because he could have. The information he gave was so far beyond what was on a piece of paper; <laughs> it really didn't matter. I mean, he knew that there was a lot more going on there than just what was on that piece of paper. But he would, you know, address people by first and last name, typically answer their questions, but then also um, cover other material or other things that they hadn't even asked about. Um, he people would also send up bills, like twenty dollar bills. And they would have recorded the serial number and then he would provide that serial number to them and things like that. So, yeah, that was kind of, you know, the entertainment part of it was the, the blindfold billet demonstration. And, you know, I know that there are people in the past who have had a technique for that that has been fraudulent. But usually what those people do would put a coin over each eye and then there's a technique of bulging that out so the coin creates space. And I don't think most of them use, would use the tape either. They would just use a blindfold. Um, but my father, you know, if you, in fact, there's a video of him on my site as well on the Steve Allen show. There's a link to that. And you can see there's just no way uh, that he could see those things. And 
even on the Steve Allen show, there was a, you can see there was one part where my dad detected that um, Steve Allen had money in his pocket and my dad reached down and took it out um, because they were going to try and trick my dad with some English currency because I guess the drummer uh, of the band was about to go to England and he wanted to see if my dad could identify what kind of currency it was and also, you know, uh, just trick him. So, yeah, it was interesting growing up with a father like that. And, um, you know, it was uh, just commonplace to me, but everybody else was stunned and amazed. Um, but here, reflecting back on it now and just seeing the quality of what he, his abilities were, really haven't met anyone. I've met some top people, but I haven't met anyone with that level of ability. So it was very rare, I would say. It's incredible. I remember watching him on TV when I was a kid doing that. It was amazing. Yeah, I know he, I wish I could get a clip of this, but he went, he was in New York City at the bitter end uh, back in 1967, I believe. Um, he, I think Frank Zappa was there and he was like <laughs> the other, the other thing. And uh, there's a Burke, something Burke, Alan Burke show. I guess he was a real cynical type character. He had a show and he'd bring on people who do different things. But I understand he uh, had my dad do a demonstration on his show. And unlike how he'd respond to most people, I guess at the end he said, you, sir, are for real. And that was quite a statement. And even Steve Allen, um, Steve Allen, for anyone who knows, was a pretty skeptical guy and hung with kind of the, the skeptic crowd like James Randi and people like that. But he... You could tell when you watch this that he thought there was probably something to what my dad was doing. And that was kind of high praise. <laughs> that sure is. Um, in the world of like, the mediumship, when you started testing, like after you lost your son and started seeing different <laughs> mediums, um, how did that help you cope with the grief? Um, I would say... It's, it gives you a sense of connection. Um, I had my own experiences too, so it wasn't just visiting mediums. In, in right. fact, just right. you had a premonition too a little bit prior to. Yeah, you? well, the day that he passed, I had a kind of a premonition, um, and I tried to keep him from going on that hike because I felt something strange about it and almost felt like there's a presence around me. Um, that and the feeling I got was that this is, could be dangerous and potentially take Brandon's life. And then I just talked myself out of it and figured I'm just being a worrying parent. And in the end, it turned out to be accurate. But maybe it was just more to prepare me than it was to have me stop him because he was 18 years old. And uh, kids do stuff like that all the time, climb mountains and, you know, go places and do things. And you can't control every little part of life. Um, but then, you know, a few days after... I'd say the first two things that really helped were um, I wanted to have a form of direct connection with my son, Brandon. And so I actually went into a darkened closet and tried to meditate. And even though I'm not great at meditating, I actually was able to get my mind still. And then um, while I was sitting there, I saw an image of his face pass in front, like um, inside my mind's eye. And he was smiling. So that made me feel like he was joyful or happy. And then the next thing I saw was um, a cross with an oval loop at the top. And I'd seen those, but I didn't really know what they were. And so I Googled that afterward and found out that that's an Ankh. Uh, it's the uh, Egyptian cross, the oldest cross of, of human history. And uh, the lower portion represents physical life and the oval loop at the top represents eternal life. So that was a way to symbolically, I guess, let me know that he was okay and he was now in eternity. Um, and that's something that helped me as, you know, having a skeptical side too, that I didn't just make that up because I didn't know what an Ankh was or what it symbolized. So that was more valuable to me. The other thing that, that happened within days, um, now, even though my father had was gone by the time that Brandon passed, my uncle who lived in Tucson was still around and he had similar abilities to my dad. So I had talked to him couple days before in fact the day of the passing and he asked if he could do anything to help and i just said if you get any kind of message or anything you can share i'd really appreciate it and um, a couple days later i'm at the mortuary and we connected by cell phone 
And he said, Mark, I have something I want to share with you. Um, you know, when I tried to meditate and get something at the last night, but I didn't. But this morning I got up and did my morning meditation and your dad came to me and um, he wanted you to know that he was there to help Brandon cross over. Um, that Brandon said you're the best parents he ever could have had, which is what you'd like to hear. But what he gave me then was the cause of death, basically saying that Brandon's blood oxygen level had dipped to a point where it caused his heart to fail. And uh, at that point, we didn't really know the cause. And it was a couple of days after that that I spoke to the physician, the autopsy physician, and she conveyed to me that Brandon had a severe asthma attack that drove his blood oxygen level down and caused cardiac arrest. So my uncle actually gave me that before the autopsy uh, was back. So that kind of was a real spark for me in terms of more interest in this. And then, so that was January, February, I'm watching the news on uh, the NBC affiliate and it's showing uh, the story about this research taking place at the University of Arizona where they would bring mediums in for blind readings uh, with sitters that they didn't know. And um, I saw some of the, the validations that were provided. And actually the first medium they showed was Alison Dubois, who was unknown at the time, but became big later on because of the, the network show medium. So I thought to myself, gee, I'd love to get a reading from her and I'd love to be in that lab. Little did I know both of those things were going to happen. And here's uh, the first irony was the day after seeing that clip, uh, an old friend of my father's from Dallas called and said, hey, Mark, I know what you've been through, and I know someone who might be able to help you. Her name's Allison Dubois, and here's a phone number you can call to get an appointment. So it's like, okay, yeah, Dad, I get it. You're, you're helping me out here. <laughs> and then um, it was about a year later that I was in the lab, and that's when I um, was participated in a single-blind experiment with another medium, Lori Campbell. Uh, she did a phenomenal job. Uh, and again, that was for a Discovery Channel clip. So those are some of the things that, that helped me initially. And then, you know, I went into this series of the readings. You know, I think I had four that I documented in Soul Shift. And I'd say a couple things about that. Um, it's, it's uh, you know, the, the range of quality of a reading may vary a lot for somebody. If you get somebody who's not that great or if it's even a good medium having a bad day, they just may not give you that much information that, that helps you a lot. But in the case of these, I, these were outstanding readings and I got a lot of specific things that uh, made me know that it was my dad and my son. And, um, and also the other thing that was ironic was a lot of the information from reading to reading was the same stuff. So there was a consistency to that. And more than anything, I guess I would just say it made me feel connected and it gave me a sense of like a connection to my son um, that was very soothing and helpful. Um, in fact, one that's not in Soulship, but is in my other book, second book, um, a medium, Tina Powers, actually took on my son's persona at one point and said something in the exact manner he would have said it. And that was like a breakthrough. That really felt like I was almost uh -huh. you know, directly talking to him. That can be rare, but it's it's pretty cool when it happens. Incredible. And there was also, um, he, he paid... He played bass guitar, right? And then it was also um, that song that was written. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, he played bass. Um, he was actually a pretty good musician. And um, so during the day of the hike, when he passed, it turns out there was another group of hikers that were not too far behind my son and his friends. And at one point they got near the top of the mountain and the other group, saw a kid waving for help and they came over and lo and behold my son Brandon's laying up on his back and they're trying to do CPR on him so one of the, the hikers from the other group his name is James Linton he uh, he had offered or he wanted to help and he he went over there but it was like already too late and he was kind of angry at God if you will because he's like well why didn't you let me help you know I came up here and what good is this you know I'm not doing any good well, I found out about James um, maybe a month later or weeks later because there was an online obituary. We didn't know who the other hikers were. They didn't give their information to the boys, and the boys just said there was this other group of people. Well, uh, this online obituary, they, uh, James and his then-girlfriend 
had logged in and written a message and said, if we wanted to talk to them, you know, here's how we could reach them. And so I did, you know, I reached out to him, found out he was a musician. And um, so he uh, explained what had taken place that day and everything else. And we, we became friends. About six months later, um, he was recording a new song and we, we, event, we were gonna go on a cruise to celebrate Brandon's high school graduation. So we decided to still go ahead with the trip, but it, we brought our older son, Stephen, and then we brought Brandon's good friend, Stu Garney. And Stu was a kid that performed CPR on Brandon. So we ha we were gone for a week, but while before we left, James Linton said he was he had an in-home recording studio and he asked if he could borrow Brandon's bass because he needed a bass for one of the songs or for several of the songs. And although he's left-handed and Brandon was right-handed, he just he played it upside down and and it worked for him. Well, anyhow, we go on this week-long cruise. We come back, and the day we get back, uh, my wife's sitting on the foot of our bed, and all of a sudden she feels a presence, and she sees through her peripheral vision a shadow figure, and she knew that it was Brandon. She felt that it was Brandon. Um, so that lasted maybe 30 seconds to a minute or something like that. Well, the very next day we get a call from James Linton and he says, um, hey, Susie, I've got something to tell you, but I don't know how to tell you. And she thought he was going to say, oh, I broke the bass guitar or something like that. But in fact, he reported the identical experience that Susie had had. He said, I was in this studio recording this song. And while I was doing it, I saw a, a shadow figure out of my peripheral vision and I saw flashes of white light. And I thought, you know, oh, I'm just hallucinating. I need to go get something to eat. Either I need water or I need to take a shower. But each time he did any of those things, he'd come back and it was even stronger than before. And finally, he just kind of gave in and said, okay, Brandon, what do you want? And then he felt guided to work on this song and change the lyrics. That's um, called The Other Side. And it's essentially, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful song. But at the end of it, James said, it's the best song I've ever written, but I didn't write it. Um, so there's a link to that song on my site too, for anyone who would want to hear it. But it's basically a message from um, Brandon to us that's channeled through in the way in I guess you call it like an automatic writing kind of thing. But musically, it's a it's a great song too. And, it's amazing. Uh, so that was an, another one of those experiences that we have. You know, not everybody gets these things. I just feel so blessed and fortunate to have had so many things, um, and I think it was you know, to push me in this direction too, so I could be a greater service to people in the world, um, give other people hope. Yeah. You know, I, I think these experiences probably happen to people more often than we would, people would like to admit. And also I think it happens, like even those people, I think it's just about being open to these experiences, honestly. If, if you're open, like, like you grew up around it, so you were obviously already open to it, and, mm -hmm. and, and you were able to pick up on those signs. Um, and I think like, mm -hmm. like a lot of times people may have these experiences and not even really recognize what they are. I think you're exactly right. It is being aware and um, alert to it. And part of it, unfortunately, is, you know, is our, we're raised in a society or brought up in a society that's so materialistic now that dismisses the spiritual aspect um, and wants to reduce everything to matter. And that that theory just doesn't fly. It's it's wrong, but yet it's still perpetuated through science and science influences culture. So um, it, I think what you're saying is exactly right. But those people who are open to it, they tend to have those experiences and, and recognize them more. Whereas other people, you know, it's like they're getting hit over the head with something and they still don't <laughs> don't see it there or don't recognize it there. Yeah. Like, I know I've had all sorts of unusual experiences, like with my parents passing and grandparents passing, you know. Um, so, so to me, it's completely real. Plus, I've had my own near-death experience, too, which... Oh, I'd like to hear more about that. Can we pause for just a second? I have a dog that needs out. You got... It. Sorry. All right. So, um, you know... When you started the organization um, to certify, you know, different mediums 
what were some of the criteria that you had come up with? Like, how do you test mediums to, you know, see, you know, how accurate they are? Because one of the things, like, I know from interviewing now so many psychics and mediums and stuff like that, too, is, you know, like, some have good days, some have bad days. And also, I think some are more effective for certain people than others. Like, you just have a better connection sometimes with, with a certain medium than you will with another one. Yeah, I think there is... You know, there's something to do with a person's energy that doesn't seem to make a difference. The very best mediums seem to be able to perform no matter what, but uh, not, that's not true for everyone. So really the way I got started with putting this together, you know, and again, I'm not trying to claim this is a, you know, a, I'm not doing this in a lab or anything like that. This is really just to be able to vet people. So I have trusted resources to steer people to. I'm not putting, trying to get this into a science journal or anything like that. But um, I here's what I did, you know, back a number of years ago, probably a decade ago, I was actually a test sitter for an experiment conducted um, by the University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies. And um, because I participated in that, I got to um, know Dr. Emily Kelly, Emily Williams Kelly, who was conducting it at the time. And I found out the protocols she used. And then I basically kind of use something very similar. And then I'm also friends with Tricia Robertson, who's with the Scottish Society of Psychical Research. And I kind of ran my protocols by her and fine tuned them. So what I would do is first off, it would have to be a blinded reading where she can't, or the medium can't see the sitter. Now I've changed that since to allow some visual contact at the end, uh, but not in the beginning. And then uh, these are these are now conducted by Zoom. And then the sitter um, has to make sure their user ID name shows up just as a first name, not a first and last name. Uh, but then again, the medium doesn't know who they're going to be reading for until it starts. So um, the sitter would join the call, and the medium has to give them a reading over Zoom, and then and it's recorded and then later transcribed, and then it's broken down into individual statements that could be. Um, graded and each one graded as either correct, incorrect, or indeterminable. So um, obviously, you know what correct or incorrect would mean, um, but indeterminable would be, say, a statement that you can't really, you don't know if it's correct or not. Maybe it's like a future prediction, or maybe it's some piece of information you can't really validate, so you don't know if it's right or wrong. But at the end of that, you know, I'll set the indeterminable statements to the side unless there's um, unless there's a large number of those. Like if more than a third of the statements are indeterminable, to me that's not really a good reading. You're not getting enough quality to that reading. Um, but let's just say for most of the time, the indeterminable statements gets pushed to the side because we can't really determine if they're right or wrong. And then we'll grade all the others. So. Um, the way I would score it is to say for, let's just say you had a hundred statements made, 60 were correct and 40 were incorrect. That'd be 60% accuracy. Uh, it requires a score of 70 to, to pass, but there's two ways to get 70. One is you'd be 70% accurate. So you'd have to have 70 out of the hundred, or you could be at least, you have to be at least 60% accurate and then have bonus statements now, a bonus statement would be like a, a home run type of a hit, like maybe you've got the name of the person who passed or you got their favorite food or their favorite band or something really important to them that's a valuable piece. And that's a subjective determination that the sitter makes. But I would give five points for a bonus statement. So hypothetically, somebody could pass if they were 60% accurate and had two bonus statements, that would get them to 70 points or more. Now, the best mediums that I've had in this actually have scored, you know, in the 80s and 90s um, and even sometimes over 100. But it's over the course of five readings. Um, and even some of the ones who have passed have had like maybe three, uh, two great readings, two good ones and one dud. Uh, but it's the overall aggregate result. Mm -hmm. So you look at you really need that um, because somebody could have if you just did one, they could have a great session. It's just like a one off. Or they could bomb one time when actually more times than not, they would be good. So uh, that's that's how the program works. And so I've been doing this since 2014. I now have an assistant, which is helpful to me because I have a full-time job and <laughs> a lot of other things going on. 
So she helps me with scheduling and then getting the transcripts and stuff together. And, and I've taught her how to score as well. So that helps me a lot. But we've got over 30 mediums, I believe, now certified on that site. Wow, that's a lot. Um, when, he, when these mediums, um, like, like one of the things that, that people will say is that mediums will uh, either make general statements and look for people's body language or type of reaction and kind of use like, you know, like, like mentalism kind of tricks. And others, people will say that they are, um, I forget what, but, but they're, 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 they'll, people use like different ways of saying that these mediums are not legit. Um, so I'm sure they're bunking or anything like that with them. That's not really my purpose with this at all. But, you know, I have seen, I think what it comes down to, there are people who think they can do this and can't. Mm -hmm. um, they're deluded. But there are people who are out to trick people and take their money. Um, I have actually seen this. Um, very rare. But at least from one of my vantage point, I haven't seen that happen much. But there are people who have done that. Um, so the way I'd answer that is twofold. First off, that's why I have the protocols that I have in the reading. So if they they can't see the sitter because they're they're only able to communicate and talk to them. So they can't really read body language. And if the statements they're making are, are too general, um, they're not going to get the results required to pass, you know, the accuracy. Um, I mean, sure, they could say, oh, do you have a grandparent on the other side? And they're talking to a 40-year-old, so the odds are pretty good. You know, the grandparent's going to be there. Yeah. But um, you can't just have a, a reading with that kind of fluff. Um, and, and like the bonus statements, I mean, they're not going to get any bonus statement credit unless they have something highly specific and meaningful to the sitter. Um, Trisha Robertson, who I mentioned earlier, who was with the Scottish Society of Psychical Research, did an experiment um, a number of years ago with uh, Professor Archie Roy, and they basically tested the hypothesis, which is um, to see if mediums make statements so general that they could apply to virtually anyone. And so they went through an elaborate protocol. There's a video of this. You probably have to Google it, but you just uh, Google Trisha Roberts. Oh, you know what it is? It's um, there's a it's a two video two part video called the Psychic Barber. And it, um, it features Gordon Smith, who's the top Scottish medium. And then it covers in, just at a high level the experiment that they conducted. Um, but their results were, you know, came back more than a uh, million to one against chance that, no, that's not the case. You know, this, this stuff isn't so general, uh, at least when you're dealing with good mediums that have that ability, right. that um, the statements aren't so general that they can apply to almost anyone. Uh, I think, you know, that there are a lot of things that skeptics say, um, even like about near-death experiences, too. They'll go on to mm -hmm. uh, excuses for things that have been disproven. Uh, you know, like they'll say, oh, it's a lack of oxygen or it's a carbon dioxide or whatever, and it's a hallucination, and these things don't hold up. They've, uh, their excuses have been debunked, um, but they keep using them. Um, so... Anyhow, I, I'm almost past the point of trying to argue with skeptics or, or to uh, spend a whole lot of time and energy, even though I did that in my second book. Uh, it's it's kind of a it's a useless uh, exercise just because they've made their mind up and you're not going to change their mind. Um, the the sad part is they have influence over a lot of people who could be otherwise helped, um, but it is what it is. Mm. I know I've probably interviewed now since last time I talked to you probably over a hundred psychics and mediums, and you know I've had a couple um, that gave me readings that weren't even close, and uh, and I've had others you know that were average, and then I have I had one in particular who just really blew me away. Like she knew that before I got on the podcast, that I was eating birthday cake. Uh, that was like, that's pretty, that's, that's some specific information. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 
<laughs> and that's what you want. You want somebody with that level of ability. Um, and once you have it, you know, nothing else kind of will suffice. And that, again, that kind of goes back to why I set up this program to test them. So that, and, and I'm not saying everyone, not saying everyone on my list is the very best in the world or anything like that, but because, you know, there's a passing level. So there's a range of ability there from the people who just barely passed to the people who blew it away. But everyone did pass. Everyone had to get, you know, the statistical results to make it. But yeah, if you have that really good experience, and then you have some an experience with somebody else that's kind of a dud. It's you almost want to stop it early. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yes. uh, it feels like a waste of time. And then you know, sometimes I, you know, psychics and mediums are, are sensitive people. So sometimes too, they can be intimidated or have have issues that kind of block their ability. Even with the certification program, I've had some people come to me who uh, folks have referred and raved about and said this person's really exceptional um but you know when they got into the testing mode it was too much pressure they started worrying about results and thinking with their rational mind too much instead of just doing what they do under normal circumstances and um so they didn't pass when you know they probably should have they were good enough but you know nonetheless uh the pressure got to them and they they got in their head right and that is the most difficult thing I believe, you know, for me anyway, when I'm trying to practice some type of psychic exercise, the more I'm able to just present information as it comes to me, rather than getting caught up in interpretation and worrying whether it's right or wrong. Um, yeah. The better the information is, the more neutral and more, I, the more neutral and the less I know, the better. Right, right. And I've, I've actually uh, done some experiments myself trying to see if I could do this and and I can but it's not something I I don't crave doing this <laughs> um it's it's interesting but um I did a six-week course that was done with Gordon Smith who I mentioned before and uh, then they'd pair us up and it was all done by zoom but some of the information I give is just basically mental imagery that I get in my mind's eye and share it and lo and behold it's pertinent to the person and it's just like, how odd, you know, it just, it, it seems like you could just dismiss it as nothing. Um, and then lo and behold, it has some meaning to the person mm -hmm. and relevance. Um, but it also, to me, I guess the thing that would keep me from wanting to pursue doing that more than anything is just the responsibility that comes with it. Especially if you're trying to do this for somebody in grief, um, that's a big responsibility. Yeah. It takes practice like any other skill. I um, yeah. Since that last time we talked, I took a remote viewing course with uh, oh. David Morehouse. And, okay. uh, and I was completely blown away by the results. I, it blew my mind. <laughs> I, was like, I had no idea I could do that. Yeah, it, it is interesting. Um, I remember <laughs> Tina Powers, the one medium I mentioned earlier, she had me come to her house once and do like a test sitting with her and really the very first time I did it well it was almost all remote viewing I started describing things that I was seeing and they were things all in her house and she then took me over oh she said oh here's this and here's that so um I obviously at that point it was more of a clairvoyant thing than anything but um it is interesting how it, it can be quite effective and was used um by the U.S. military you know, for spying purposes. There's a man in um, Hawaii uh, on Oahu named Glenn Wheaton, who ran an organization called the Hawaiian Remote Viewers Guild. And um, he contacted me years ago and had told me that my dad had done some remote viewing for the government. Now, I've never heard that from my dad. I never had seen any documentation of that. But he claimed that my dad, uh, he actually discovered my dad he went to one of these nightclubs in Honolulu on Waikiki and saw my dad. And then I guess to see if he was for real or not, they um, asked him if he'd be willing to come to their lab and and be a guinea pig, so to speak. And he agreed. And then um, apparently when they got him there, they sat him down and they put some sort of, I don't know, 
paste or whatever over his eyes, mm -hmm. some sort of substance that he couldn't, they knew he couldn't see. And that if he did anything, it would crack and be evident. So they did that. And then he, he was able to remote view, you know, whatever it was they were trying to get him to see or see if he could do it. So then they knew that he was for real. And then they asked him a lot of questions to kind of understand, well, how do you do this? How does it work? How do you, and they built these training protocols around that, according to this man, Glenn, and then uh, trained other people to do remote viewing because there, at the time, I guess there were government contracts available where people could do it. And he claims that my father had identified the location of some POWs and even provided dog tag numbers. Um, now, again, I can't validate that. Mm -hmm. but maybe it's classified information. I'm not sure, but um, you know that's kind of interesting. I know most people know of the whole um, program through SRI, the Stanford Research Institute, yeah. Russell Targ, and, and put off Hal Putoff, who were coordinating uh, those efforts um, back in the day, and that. Um, most of the folks that were, I think it was called Stargate was mm -hmm. the uh, initiative, but I don't think my dad was involved with Stargate because I've never seen his name come up and I've read yeah. a book or two on. Yep. The guy who I took the remote viewing course, he wrote the manual for Stargate. Was that Bob McMonagall? Um, <laughs> David Morehouse. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. you had mentioned that. Yeah. So. Yeah, it's interesting. We can do a lot more than we think we can. Um, you know, it's, I think it's just a latent ability. I, I've heard people say, what if, you know, if you went back to caveman times and maybe it was like a protective kind of thing to know if like a, some dangerous animal was around the corner or, you know, there was a rock slide about to happen and you, you trust that insight or that intuition uh, to, to protect yourself. And now, you know, we have all this other type of stimuli and internet and uh, music and <laughs> Facebook and Instagram and everything else. So it's like we uh, move past that and we don't pay much attention to that that kind of inner voice or inner guidance. Yeah. Plus, we're also told to really not believe it. It's almost been demonized in a lot of ways. Yeah. I mean, that's true. It's both... On the scientific skeptical side, they're like, ah, oh, that's all bunk. You know, you're, you're just deluding yourself if you believe in that or try to do any of that. And then, you know, you could have fundamentalist religion that demonizes it, even though in the New Testament, a lot of the, the gifts of the Spirit are, are these very things. It's just what you want to call them, you know. But the uh, the healings uh, performed by Jesus, the the... Um, clairvoyance, for example, you know, the uh, woman at the well that Jesus talks to and, you know, he knows and says to her that you had all these husbands and the man you're with now isn't your husband. And she says, oh, you must surely be a prophet. Um, so, I mean, that's clairvoyance. Uh, and then even the, there's a, a case where uh, the disciples see Jesus talking to two deceased uh, people, Elijah, Elijah and Moses. Uh, so that's mediumship, you know, talking to dead people in plain sight of, of, of them. And uh, and then in John, it, it says, it has Jesus saying, all the works I do, you can do in greater works than these. So um, I think the church just likes control to some extent, maybe. And um, if people explore too much on their own um, and have an independence, don't necessarily need the church. Some of that control slips away. Um, I do think, you know, you have to be careful too, because I don't think everything's uh, roses and butterflies. When you get into um, the spiritual realm, I think that's why a lot of mediums I know really do a lot of preparatory work um, so that they're, uh, I would just say you had a high energy level and they want to connect with more enlightened sources, if you will, um, and, and people's deceased loved ones. Um, so, you know, in this world, we have, you know, murderers and thieves and things like that. So when those folks die, uh, I don't think they're immediately transformed into saints. Um, so. Absolutely. Um, how do you know it is? Or even is there a difference between true mediumship 
and say, for instance, um, the ability to um, read a person's mind or using telepathy or accessing Akashic records, um, things like that, versus true mediumship where they're communing directly with the spirit. So there's really no way to prove this. And, the, you know, people have had theories. Um, if you go back you know, in the 1920s or even before, you know, a lot of people that acknowledge the existence of psychic phenomena as a reality would still contend, well, you know, you're having telepathy with the sitter. There's no proof that there's actually a spirit there. Or the whole idea of an Akashic record or just clairvoyancy ability, uh, sometimes called super psi or psi, to just be able to pick up anything that had ever happened at any time. The closest thing I can get to proof for me personally uh, is a couple of things. One is um, mediums will say that they feel a difference between a psychic reading and a mediumship reading. There is a sense of volition, like there's a, a desire of this spiritual entity to communicate a specific message to come through. So it's more forceful. It's like there's a desire to do that. Um, and I've seen cases of that uh, in, I think in my second book, I, I gave a, in chapter one, a, an example. Um, it's kind of long-winded, so I won't repeat it here. But I'd say the volition piece is like, um, they feel this um, force wanting to send this message to communicate it, as opposed to just generically getting a psychic impression. Um, and then I think also too, like my wife having that experience of seeing our son and then having a friend have the same thing. Um, of seeing him, uh, at least the, the figure of him through her peripheral vision, that there's something there. You know, what is it she's seeing? She's um, seeing an entity, in, in my view. So those are a couple of the things that make me think that. Now, is every reading a mediumship reading? Maybe not. We're testing someone right now who actually said she's a medium, but most of her readings have been psychic. So we're basically not certifying her because even though her results are okay, it's not the intent of our program. It's clearly psychic information just because it's pertaining to job, career, all this kind of stuff for relationship for the, the person she's reading, not uh, messages pertaining to the deceased loved one. Um, so kind of a roundabout answer there, but those are my thoughts on how you might differentiate between, you know, um, a reading that is true mediumship versus psychic or telepathy or clairvoyant or casual right. record reading. Right. And the definitions themselves are a bit blurred. Yeah. Um, because no one can, you know, how do you, how do you show somebody what an Akashic record looks like? You know? right. <laughs> and I think my dad would say that he actually used all of those things in conjunction so there was spiritual contact, but it's like maybe for him, it was putting a piece of a puzzle together. It's like I get a little information with this and a little of this and a little of this and a little of that to put it together into a context, um, a puzzle. You know, all these pieces come together and then I have the full picture kind of thing. Interesting. Um, on average, how many people, like percentage-wise, pass your certification test? Is it like a 10% passing rate or anything like that? It's actually higher than that. Um, and I, I knew someone was going to ask me that one day, but I've never really kept track of it um, because I just have moved on when people don't pass. But I think the reason it's higher than that is because most of the people that come to me are they're experienced mediums who have been doing this for quite a while, and they're just looking for this for their credibility. Um, if I had to guess, I'd say... 30 to 40% maybe pass, it would be it would be much lower if it was just the average person or everybody who thinks they have some ability that they may or may not have came to me. But again, I think because I'm getting more experienced people, that that is a it's a higher percentage. Lately here though, I would say it's lower. It's been more like 20, 25% here lately, and I don't know why that is. Um, I know I was on another podcast, the Skeptico podcast recently, and then after that some folks are coming out of the woodwork, so <laughs> um, maybe they were just people who wanted to give it a try or whatever. But I, anymore, I don't want to waste my time. We only have the capacity to really test two people at a time. So I try to make sure that they're established, they're experienced, and then, um, you know, um, that they maybe have a website or social media so I could check them out 
um, and, and that they're, you know, legitimate, legitimately pursuing this too, and not just some skeptic playing games with me or whatever. Hmm. Have you ever had anybody get mad because you didn't certify them? No. Um, I mean, I'm typically pretty diplomatic <laughs> when it comes to that. And, um, I just explain, look, this, you know, more than anything, the, the process isn't for everyone. And it's, it's a difficult thing to pass. The standards are high. And it, I understand that it's not putting them in a situation that they might feel is most conducive to the work that they do. Um, so uh, I think because of that, they, you know, they, they would understand like, hey, look, you know, this is a tough thing and it's just not my cup of tea to be able to perform with those controls in place like that. Yeah. And based on some of the other psychics that I have interviewed, they consider, you know, for themselves personally, they say if they get 70% or better stuff right, they consider that a good reading. I would say that's true. It's maybe not a great reading, but a good one, yeah. 70% and up, yeah. And if it's 80, 90, then it's phenomenal. And people might ask, well, like, hey, if this is real, why aren't they getting 100%? You know, if the Spirit's talking to them, why don't they tell them exactly what to say? And they shouldn't be wrong on anything. Well, because they don't understand how it works. It doesn't work like that. Most mediums, and I, I could share this just because I've, in the tests I've done, I know what it's like when it works. Um, and it's most often, it's going to be, if it's clairvoyance, they're just getting images in their mind of something that may have relevance. Um, and if they, sometimes it's vague, so they don't really know what's, what they're supposed to say related to that. You know, maybe they see a, a bus or something and the bus had to do with, uh, you know, maybe the person that passed was a bus driver, you know, and, but they don't know that they just see a bus or something. Um, and in addition, they, if they're clairaudient, you'd think that that means like they audibly hear. Well, very few of them audibly hear. Or it's pretty rare. More often than not, it's a, it, um, a word or words pop into their awareness. Mm -hmm. So that's the more common clear audiences. Um, you're just getting these words that pop in. I'll give you an example. Uh, this is probably the, the most <laughs> stunning personal experience I ever had. I was um, asked to speak back in 2015 or 16 at the Golden Gate Spiritualist Church in San Francisco. And I did this over three years. And each time I would bring a medium friend, Tina Powers, who I mentioned earlier. So I would do a talk and then she would do gallery readings for the people in the congregation. So this one particular time we were going and she said to me, Mark, I think you're going to get a message to share with the, the congregation. Will you do it? And I said, well, sure. If I get something, I'll be happy to share it. She goes, and she, then she kept bugging me about it. Like she was afraid I wasn't going to do it. Like, Mark, are you sure, you know, you promised you're going to give this information if you get it. I'm like, yes, I will. And even to the day that we actually walked into the church, as we're going into the door, she's like, Mark, now if you get a message, you're going to share it, right? I'm like, yes. We go into the church. Um, we're about 30 minutes early. So I go back. They had a healing room. And I sat at the on the bench for an organ or piano that they had in the healing room. And I tried to meditate just to call myself and uh, just free up my mind and prepare for my talk. While I was doing that, though, my, my mind actually went blank. Like, it was like a blank slate. And while it was like that, um, a name popped into my head, which was Max. And then immediately after that, Maxine. And I thought, oh, maybe it's Maxine, not Max. Um, and that's all I got, just those two names, Max and Maxine. I didn't see them. I didn't hear them. They just popped in like an idea would come to you or a memory might come to you. Well, this church was built, I think, in 1927 or 29, or in the 20s. And it was founded by a woman named Florence Becker, who, by all accounts, had similar abilities to my father, very similar. And um, she passed in the early 70s, I believe. Um, so the church had been going on after this. And um, so anyhow, it's time for, I just gave you that for context because it's going to be relevant with what I'm going to share next. So it's time for my talk. I give my talk. And then when I'm finishing, I said, look, Tina made me promise if I got anything that I would share it with the uh, congregation. So I don't know if this will have any relevance to anyone here, but uh, I'm going to share it anyhow. Do the names Max or Maxine mean anything to anyone here? And the church pastor, his jaw dropped, and he, he said, 
Well, Max and Maxine were twin children born to the church founder, Florence Becker. Um, and they, they were stillborn and they grew up on the other side. Um, and he said, only a couple people on the board here even know that it's not common knowledge. So that was crazy, you know, to come up with these <laughs> two names. And they came to me so subtly. It's like, I could have easily dismissed it and not share that. Mm -hmm. He says, oh, yeah, I'm just making that up. But yet, how did, and, and then he said, I think we know who is here. Well, isn't it odd that not only was it relevant, but it was the church founder, it was relevant to her. So why did those names come to me? You know, that's back to that volition thing, I think. Like, why of anything would I just randomly get that if it was just um, the Akashic Record or um, telepathy with the sitter? Well, he clearly wouldn't have been thinking about Max and Maxine uh, or the few people that even knew of it. But the church founder, that would have been, to me, a way for her to convey that it's her, you know, because it's unmistakable. Those are her her two children. He then took me upstairs. He says, I want to show you something. And he showed me a painting that was on the wall. And it was a landscape uh, painting with a long winding road. And at the end were these two little figures. He goes, that's Max and Maxine. So that was pretty crazy. Um, but I guess that's uh, that's what I had to share about that. Wow. One of the things that, that have also been told to me by psychics, one of, you know, that affects their accuracy is um, you know, as people, we, we only have a limited vocabulary or individuals will only recognize certain things. You know, like if I see a certain piece of farm equipment in my mind, I'm not going to be able to identify what it is, you know. I just, oh, some kind of machine. And that's one of the things, too, that also causes inaccuracy sometimes in these readings. That's right. Yeah. Most of them will have their own language, if you will. I know John Edward wrote about this in one of his books, but it's like the more uh, you know, or the more you've read, or the more things you can relate to as images, the the broader the language can be. Because they, they tap into your awareness to select an image that you recognize to convey something to you. Uh, got another medium friend. She when she sees a rainbow, she knows it's about a tropical place. But when she sees a double rainbow, she knows that it's specifically Hawaii. So that would be an example of, you know, the language. Yeah. Uh, I have another medium friend in Scotland, uh, Stephen Burns, who he told me that he, um, he wanted to broaden his abilities. And so he studied these maps of uh, Edinburgh, where he lives, to look at all the street names and and just so he would have that in his mind, like all these various street names and things. And it seems to help him, you know, with places, you know, if someone, if he's reading for, and, and he, you know, he can maybe come up with Polk Street or whatever the name of the street is, then the person might say, hey, yeah, I, I live on that street or my father who died lived on that street or something like that. But yeah, it seems like that, that is true. You know, the accuracy is going to be um, affected by that. You know, if that's the language uh, that you're dealing with, it's symbolic, then the more symbols you have available, probably the more accurate you can be. Yeah. And sometimes, too, you know, we just speak different languages. Like if you're trying to contact somebody who doesn't speak English, say they speak Polish, for instance, that, that you know, you know, do we know if that entity is going to, communicate through an English language or are you going to communicate with their native language? Yeah, that's that's very interesting, too. So that's why I think if somebody who's clairvoyant probably would do better because um, if it's imagery, then they could explain what they're seeing. But then if you had an interpreter, you know, uh, that could speak to the, if your sitter's Polish, you know, and they need to hear it in Polish, you'd have to have, you'd tell somebody in English what you're seeing and they'd convey it. So it's a kind of wacky. Uh, but yeah, um, there's a lot of interesting questions about that, those kinds of issues that could come up. So before we wrap this up, um, what do you think is the source of all this psychic phenomenon? Do you think um, that all information is accessible to all human beings? Um, do you believe that it's some type of quantum entanglement? 
or is simple probability? Um, <laughs> I can't claim to know the answer to this. <laughs> I have ideas and theories. So I think, you know, when you look at quantum entanglement, to me, that kind of, it tells me something. And for people who don't know what that means, basically what's been discovered in, in repeated experiments is that entanglement refers to two particles that have ever been uh, in contact or connected in a special way could be separated as far apart as opposite ends of the universe. And whatever happens to one instantaneously happens to the other, which, you know, well, if you're just looking at the universe as uh, space and time, that, that seems to be impossible because the speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. Mm -hmm. Yet, even from one end of our galaxy to the other is, I believe, 150 million light years. So that tells me that there's an underlying uh, level or dimensional reality that is not restricted by space and time. Um, whether that's some sort of matrix or that's the spiritual realm, I can't say. But to me, entanglement hints at something like that, something more, an underlying reality. Um, I think it's it's just natural. It's just that we've convinced ourselves uh, that the world we've created and built and we think we know so much about, we don't really know nearly as much as we think we do. Um, and I think consciousness is primary. Uh, that's been evidenced um, through, you know, the observer effect in quantum physics too. You know, mm -hmm. the, it's been proven repeatedly that um, matter is affected by your viewing it or observing it um, through the double slit experiment for anyone who wants to look that up. So if there's a relationship between your consciousness and physical reality, maybe they're kind of one and the same or they're blended together. And we just don't understand, you know, the, the mind, mind kind of created the physical, um, in, in my view, consciousness precedes matter. And um, I think it's interesting when you look at people who are very psychic, like the most psychic, some of them have had damage to their brain maybe either they've had um very stressful childhoods or were abused or things like that that caused them to go deeper inside and not um and that sensitivity or whatever like my dad you know he he had a, a tough childhood and i think that caused him to go deeper within you know what i'm saying and that made him more sensitive and more aware on a psychic level um, one theory is that the brain it doesn't produce consciousness, but it's a restrictor of consciousness. So, so you have all of reality and the brain squeezes it down to just the things we need to survive here in this world in a physical body. So we're more focused on that. But there's more out there. It's just like a radio band goes this wide, but you, you know, you're only tapping into one station at a time. So we're on this station right now. It doesn't mean there's not more stations playing. Um, so the people that are psychic, maybe they could tune into those other stations. Mm -hmm. They have that ability. Uh, their brain is not as restrictive or doesn't sift out as much. Um, so those are some of my thoughts, but I don't know that I have, or anyone has the exact answer. <laughs> yeah, nobody has the answer. I also do share that theory, though, that um, the brain is more like a receiver than a, you know, a hard drive and it's receiving information and um you know the if something if the filter is broken like a like a, on a camera it's going to receive all kinds of light that that it normally wouldn't receive just i think it's the same way with the brain so sometimes i think too with like people that are considered like mentally ill or um developmentally disabled is some of the stuff that they're receiving is not that it's not true it's just that nobody else can perceive it except that Right. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's a, it's a great observation. Yeah. Cool. Um, so before we wrap this up, uh, where is the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books? Okay. Uh, my website is markirelandauthor.com. It's M-A-R-K, Ireland like the country, the word author, markirelandauthor.com. If you go there, um, you'll learn about my books. I've got other links to other media uh, including videos of my dad, me on Discovery Channel, other interviews I've done. 
um, and then a link to the Helping Parents Heal website for anyone who um, maybe has had a child pass and would like to look into that. Um, and then uh, my dad's website. And um, so that that's probably the best place to go. I, I've got, like I said, I published two books. My second book actually is about to be updated and republished under a new title. Um, the working title is going to be The Persistence of the Soul. And my new publisher is Bear Inner Traditions. Okay. Um, I don't have a date on that, but that'll be coming out, I would think, within a year. And then I'm working on a new book now um, about the father that I had and what it was like to grow up with him. So kind of biographical on him, but not mm -hmm. just biographical, also kind of my perspective and and uh, what it was like to be his kid. Um, and that that's probably still a year or two away. Okay. Awesome. Well, I'll post a link to your website and your books on in the notes of this episode. And uh, thank you for coming on. It was a pleasure talking with you again. Yeah, thanks again for having me. It was fun. Fantastic. Just hang on for one moment, and I just have to play the outro.